This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. If you're thinking about the dream that a lot of architects have, which is going out on your own and starting your own office, or maybe you've grown in your current position where you have new responsibilities, there are some skills you're going to need to develop if you want to hedge your chances at success. First and foremost is your ability to attract clients, and not to mention, work that you actually want to do. Welcome to episode 102, Business Development. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, Andrew and I are going to talk about business development, something that I bet 99% of us have never received any formal training. Do you think I'm off on that number, Andrew? No. Yeah. Most of the architects I know rely on being a likable person, you know, in the beginning and hope that the quality of the work they produce opens the floodgates to potential clients and projects. And waiting for the phone to ring does not constitute business development for the purposes of our conversation today. (laughs) Yeah, no, not the best strategy. It's not a great strategy, but I will be the first one to tell you that when it comes to business development, I don't really know what I'm doing. It's all kind of This is just what makes sense to me. And business development to me always meant, well, be a good architect and maybe a better human being and hope that your clients and the work that you do help you get those projects, which that is not a plan or a strategy. (laughs) (laughs) No. So to that end, we decided we would get a guest on the show with us today to talk about the subject. Longtime friend, and I do mean long time. Mark R. LePage, AIA NCARB, is an architect based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the founder of Entree Architect, the global community for small firm entrepreneur architects, and EntreeArchitect.com, the online platform launched in 2012 to provide information, resources, and training for architect business owners and small firm leaders. Celebrating his 10th year hosting Entree Architect podcast, Mark has published more than 450 episodes and has contributed to the community through more than 3 million total downloads. Mark is also the president and CEO of Gable Media Inc., a multimedia network that empowers global leaders in the architecture, engineering, and construction industries. For more information, we'll provide a link in the show notes that will bring you to the Gable Media webpage, where you can really deep dive into all the amazing things Mark is doing within the AEC industry. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hi, Bob. Andrew, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Well, it's been a long time in coming, I think. That's my fault. (laughs) I'm thrilled to be here. You know, the three of us have been friends for a long time. Big fan of everything that you're doing from the blog all the way to what you're doing today with the podcast. So I'm honored to be here. Well, it's nice. You're gracious to say that. Yeah, you really got the leg up on us with 450 episodes. Oh, my God. That's way, way too many. (laughs) I can't even imagine. That's what happens when you start a long time ago. That's the only difference. (laughs) Well, you know what? Yes, that is true. I will concede if you start a long time ago, but the fact that you're still doing it and there's a passion and there's a relevancy to the people you're bringing on and talking about. I mean, Andrew and I, this is episode 102 and we have these moments of like, what are we going to talk about next? That's a struggle, quite honestly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm impressed. And I know it's going to make the... I mean, it should make it. Between the three of us, I'm sure we have it. It was the first time when we all kind of got together in Chicago, and there's a picture of us with a bunch of other people at a pizza joint. Right. 
all sitting around this table. And I look at, and I go, that's the sort of photo that years and years from now, you know, we've seen pictures where like, oh, that's La Corbusier and that's Mies van der Rohe. And that's, (laughs) that's going to be that group. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sure. I'm so certain. It'll be the digital architect pioneers to a certain extent. Yeah. That was kind of the original group. I love that photo. Yeah. Yeah. That photo shows up every once in a while for sure. Yeah. So we have Mark on to talk about business development. And I think before we actually launch into that specific topic, I think we need to talk about what business development actually is and what it is not. Business development is not marketing. That's something that Andrew made a bullet point note in the run sheets. And I go, that's a really good distinction we should make right at the very beginning because for a lot of people, They think of marketing as that's the task and role of business development. And it's an aspect of it, but it's not what it is in its entirety. Right, exactly. It's a whole separate thing. Yeah. You need business development, whether you're marketing or not. You need the business development is what brings the work in. Yeah. And one of the ways that figured out how to explain it was that business development really gives the direction and marketing provides the support for whatever that direction is. If I decide I'm going to do this project type or go after this kind of work, well, the marketing aspect of that helps me support that by focusing my marketing communications on that market. But it's the business development that gives me the direction. They're the leaders in this whole thing about this is where the company's supposed to be going or where we want it to go or how we want it to be. And the marketing just follows suit with that. So it is a part of it, but it's not interchangeable in their usage. Okay, so let's do this. Let's define what business development is. So as we like to say on the show, Mark, we went to the internet where all information is kept and is accurate. (laughs) Yes. The accurate information of the internet. Yeah. What do other people think it is? So we have three different definitions and Andrew and I had like a little pregame call before we got on this call and this doesn't resonate with me at all. So I'm kind of curious as what your take would be. So Forbes defines business development as the creation of long-term value for an organization from customers, markets, and relationships. And I go, okay, I don't disagree with that, but in my mind, maybe that just underscores that I don't really know what business development is because I go, that's just a piece of it. If someone tells me, Bob, I need you to do business development, that means something very specific in my mind, and it isn't that. I'll tell you that much right now. What do you think? Our expert. Yeah. I think that there's a lot more to it. Do you want me to go into what I think, or do you want to read some more definitions first? Well, okay, we can do this. Let's read some of these other ones. So we have the Forbes definition, which is an aspect of it. We have another one that basically says it's essentially any activity or idea that aims to make business better over time. And that means making use of customers and implementing strategic partnerships, using your markets and building your company's reputation. Okay, great. Another one says, Business development includes various activities and processes, that's generic, to build and implement growth opportunities to create a sustainable and profitable business. That last one resonates closer to me. I would never define it that way, but that one resonates me as like, oh yeah, that's my understanding of business development. So we thought, hey, for sport, for giggles, Why don't we all define business development for us? And I'll start because since I'm literally conceding that I don't know what it is, maybe that's a good jump off point. And business development from me, and I think I like to keep it simple, even though there's a lot of evidence to support that that's not actually true. 
Business development is defined as creating opportunities to engage with potential clients and businesses with the goal of driving work to the firm. Essentially, business development is the thing that gets you in the room. Yeah. That's its simplest term. That is the compass north for me on business development. I'm just trying to engage with people that might actually need what I do. That's it. Yeah. For me, I look at business development as the process of filling the pipeline. You essentially want to have a pipeline full of projects. Projects that you're working on, projects that are pending, that they're contracted and they're moving in, and there's projects out there that potentially could become projects. And that process from getting them from potential projects to real projects, that's how I look at business development. And there's a whole bunch of pieces, pieces that have to be in place for that pipeline to start filling. Mm -hmm. That's how I look at business development, which is very similar to what you're talking about. You know, and it was funny when I'm, and Andrew, I want to hear your definition as well, but I will say that I added the word, the goal, because it's one thing to go, I have a plan, but there should be a summation. I'm going to do this with the objective of accomplishing that. And the, that part of this, the equal, the summation is getting work, like actually getting work, not getting opportunities. That's not the same thing to me. Business development is about getting work, not necessarily about getting opportunities. Andrew, what's your definition of business development? Well, I mean, I think mine is similar in a lot of ways, except I tend to add this notion of firm longevity and sustainability and maybe this, this aspect of trying to future-proof your business as much as possible. I think there's some element of it that is about getting work and keeping work, but also ensuring the probability that if you're in a certain market and that market crumbles, that your firm's not going to crumble. And I think that's something that often gets overlooked is maybe it's about diversity of work or something along those lines, but there's this aspect to it that's about the health of the firm that goes beyond just getting work, right? Because firm culture also works into that. I mean, there's a lot of things. Not that that's really business development, but in a way, that type of thing is business development, not financial business development, but your company development. And to me, those two are interlinked. So similar, but a little bit more long forward looking, I think. Okay. Well, let me ask this, Mark. And I think that this is where you make your money today. Because I made a comment to Andrew that I don't think that any firm of size is coming to the life of an architect podcast to get any insight to their marketing strategies. I think maybe they should. <laughs> so this really is geared towards small firms or people that are just starting out or people that have the question, yeah. I need to get work. How do I get work? That's what in their mind they're thinking business development is. And so let's talk a little bit about firm size and business development. And as a small firm operator, which could be you or you know just a couple employees, like how much time do you think is reasonable to dedicate towards this? And at what point do you go, well, we're big enough to where we actually need a full-time person in this role as business development? I'm kind of curious as if you have any specific opinions on that. Yeah, I do. For small firms, and that's the Entree Architect community, they're small firms, sole practitioners, that's who we are. And a lot of them are really small firms. So they're wearing every hat. They're doing all the work themselves. For them, business development is to make sure that they have the next job. So when they're finished with the job that they're working on or they're working on several projects at the same time, that there's more projects coming down the line to work on. And that process is business development. And not everybody calls it that. They're doing it 
whether they, they know it or not, because if they didn't, they wouldn't have any work and they'd be out of business. Like I had mentioned earlier, there are a few steps that have to be in place in order for business development to work. So there's a few things that have to be in place first, but they're critical for business development to actually happen. The first one is financial management. And so a lot of small firm architects are not focused on their financial management. They don't really understand financial management. They don't really understand how the money flows in and where it goes when it goes out and how to track that, how to have keep financial performance indicators. All of that stuff is really important because what that allows you to do is create a profit plan. And I know I'm going a little deeper in here, but what the profit plan does is it defines how much work you need in order to be profitable. And so once you understand how much work you need in order to be profitable, now you know how many projects you need to have for the next year. So you do that work up front in order to understand what you need in terms of business development, because you can't do business development in a vacuum. You can't just go out and look for work. A lot of architects do that, but a lot of architects struggle because they do that. They don't do that initial planning up front, then they don't know how much work they really need to do. Once they understand how much work they need, then they need to go through the process of defining who their ideal client is. Mm -hmm. Who is that ideal client? How many of those projects are your ideal client? And there's a process to go through to figure that out, which is essentially building your brand. When you build a brand and you understand who you are as a firm and who you want to work for, then you can start putting together elements of your business, building your brand to attract specific types of clients that are the clients that you want. So if you need 10 projects, per year that you've determined in your profit plan. Now, how are you going to attract those types of projects that you want? You build a brand in order to attract those types of clients. That's all part of that process of bringing that work in. Because once those clients start being attracted to you and what your firm does, then how you go from that attraction to a contract is the business development part, right? How do you do that? Some of that for small firms is literally just their website telling their story, and there's some sort of mechanism in order to take the next step for their clients. And then they have a call and they have an initial meeting and they go through that process of trying to get them to become part of their clients. So that's critical to the conversation that we're, we're having. Here. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of interesting. Let's break what you just said into a couple different pieces. Let's start with the first yep. one, which is defining your desired client or your project type or the type of work that you want to do. Right. That's really important. You know, it is really important. And we've had, Andrew, do you remember when we had Omar Gandhi on? He was talking about in the beginning, he was just taking on whatever he could get. He was doing a deck on the back of somebody's house and uh, yeah, every job you can get. And for him, that strategy had more to do with building relationships. And this was the desired client. He was on, I'm doing this work because I want to help out contractors. And then now all of a sudden contractors know that I'm available and I do good work and I'm responsive and so on and so forth. And therefore, I get more opportunities from those folks. Yeah. I know that a handful of people that reach out to me from time to time, and even our good buddy, Eric Reinhold, he talked about this as well as like, do you want to, yeah. and I won't be able to say it the way he said it, because I've slept since we had this conversation with him 30 episodes ago or whatever it was. <laughs> he talked about having to make a conscious decision at some point in his entrepreneurial solo practice yep. to not do whatever work that he could get to only do the type of work he wanted to do. Right. He defined his ideal client. That's right. And he's like, this is what I want to do. I'm not going to do any of this other stuff. 
And so whatever time that became available because he didn't have as much work, he's like, well, then I can focus on developing more relationships or finding more projects that suit what I want. Exactly. As opposed to spending time doing work I don't want to do just to, I don't know, I don't want to say pay the bills because that was not the issue. It was, if I only want to do cabins, for example, I don't want to burn time and energy and resources and skill set doing a strip center modification when that's not the type of work that I want to do because then I'll get hired to do more of those and I don't want to do those. Right. So don't do them. Exactly. Which I always kind of go, yes, that's very solid advice. I will also tell you that there's a number of people that go, uh, I just need to pay the power bill right now. So mm-hmm. I'm going to take this project because I need a job. Not I'm not at a point where I can be picky, which I think that we need to recognize that that happens. Like that's a reality. I think a lot of architects start out that way. And by default, many architects have to start out that way. And then a lot of architects continue like that and continue throughout their entire career that way. And those architects struggle. Every month, it's hard to pay the bills because they haven't done that work up front. What Eric did is he defined his ideal client, chose which clients are the right clients for him. This is the type of work that I want. This is what this client where they work, what they look like, where they play, all of that stuff is defined. So now Eric knows once you select your ideal client, everything gets easier because now you know exactly who you need to talk to. Yeah. You know exactly who you need to attract. If your business development process is that website and reacting to the people coming to that website, that website is attracting a specific type of client. So you know when you have that conversation with them that they're probably pretty close to the type of clients that you want. If your business development process is going to the golf club every week and hanging out with the people who are members to that club, and those members you know are your ideal client for the type of work that you want to do, you know that that's the club that you need to join. If you don't do that initial work, then you don't know which club to join. When I started doing work in New York, we did high-end residential additions and alterations. And our ideal client were us. We were our ideal client. And so we got tons of work through our nursery school, which once I realized that, I started to cultivate the relationships of the other parents with my kids' friends' parents. They became my ideal client. That's who I defined as my ideal client and built a really successful firm around that type of work. When we first started, my wife and I are both architects. We both wanted to do super high-end custom residential work in Westchester County, New York. 40 minutes north of New York City, where all the Wall Street money lives. We're like, we're living right in the right place. We're perfect. So we start marketing towards that. Two 29-year-old kids with no portfolio, we got no work because we were competing with firms that have been around for 30, 40 years with giant portfolios who had defined their ideal client and they were doing that work. And so once we did the work, figure out who our ideal client was, we brought our focus to that market, became really successful at doing that work, built a reputation, and then slowly over time, grew our work to some of those larger projects. And so that's a much more sustainable process than taking on everything because you need to pay the bills. If you've been in business for more than five years and you can't pay the bills, it's because you haven't done the work up front to put together a financial management system, defined your ideal client, and built the brand that attracts the clients that you want to do work with. Yeah. All right, I'm about to blow this out completely. All right, let's do it. I think, I think there's something to be said for saying yes to everything in the beginning. Yeah, for sure. We did that. When you're a zero to five. Yeah. Just like changing jobs to find out what you want to do, I think it's okay to say yes to everything. I agree. In the beginning, to be able to figure out what that ideal client is, I think you have to take on 
multiple types of clients for multiple types of projects and just really you kind of have to say yes to everything to figure that out. Yeah. Because let's say, I mean, I don't know how long you've been working, but even if you've been working for a couple of years and you've never actually dealt with clients, if you work in some giant firm and you feel like you've got that, yeah, you want to go out on your own, you've got to say yes to a lot of things in order to even understand clients and how they operate and what's a good client, what's a bad client. That takes experience and practice. You can't just pluck this ideal client right. out of your mind when you don't even know, yeah. you know how clients behave and things like that. So I think it's really important to, in the beginning, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying yes to everything. I think as you move along, then you have to kind of reevaluate and say, okay, now that I've done this a while, this is what I want to do. These are the people I want to work with. And then it becomes an easier thing to pinpoint and to target that where you want to be. But I don't think that there's anything wrong within the beginning saying yes to everything because you never know what, yeah. what one yes could lead to another yes or to something that you've never even thought of. Right. And your ideal client may become something that you were not expecting because you did do all that work. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll add this to that mix. So, and I'll tell this story in greater detail maybe later, but if you look at my website and the projects that I talk about or focus on, they look like they're, they are really nice actually. And they're all over the place. And people are surprised to learn that I will take on very small projects because in the Dallas Fort Worth area where I call home, I don't get a lot of work. I'm more likely to get projects in California and Arizona and Wyoming and Wisconsin. I mean, I get projects there far easier than I do in my own backyard. And I was talking to a contractor friend of mine. I was like, I don't get it. It's like, I have a pretty good reputation. And in fact, my daughter was, I don't know if I should tell the story, but I'll do it. And I'll find out later if I want to cut it out. <laughs> She's teaching some kids how to swim. She's a swim instructor as a graduating senior. She's done it for a while now. And she got hired by these two families to give private lessons to their two five-year-old kids. And she came in last night and told me that one of the moms said she knew who I was. And when she saw my daughter's name, she goes, is your dad Bob Borson? And she's like, yeah. And she's like, oh man. And she started talking about it like, oh, I lived in New York and we just moved down here and I needed to get a house done, but no way would he want to work with me and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I a hundred percent would have done that. And so talking to this contractor, I go, how come I can't get work in my own backyard? Or I can get work all over the place, but I can't get this kind of stuff. How do I get to meet these people? And he kind of said it really succinctly. He's like, you got to say yes. You got to be helpful. You got to say yes to literally somebody goes, I need help picking out a front door, which I actually put that on my website. I will help you pick out a front door because like Andrew said, you don't know when you being helpful to somebody doesn't turn into somebody else needing something from you that is a little bit bigger, a little bit better, a little nicer, more along the kind of tract of projects that you want to do. So despite the fact that I have $10 million worth of house and construction around the country, I'm taking on garage additions in my backyard. Yeah, yeah. Not literally my backyard, but you know, in the Dallas area. The, your next door neighbor. Yeah, yeah, because at that point I'm saying yes, because that's important to me. I want to grow my marketplace here in Dallas because I'd like to have more work here locally. Right. So how do I do it? I'm saying yes to those kind of projects. Yeah, but what you've also done is you've identified your ideal client, not your ideal project. Correct. Your ideal client has small projects and large projects. And so you know that if you are available to do small projects for your potential ideal client or somebody who may introduce you to your ideal client, that small project may lead to a large project. That's the power of the ideal client. If you didn't know your ideal client and you just did anything for anybody, you'd be doing strip malls and bathroom renovations and 
uh, medical office building and all of that stuff. And, and you'd struggle because you would get all these different types of work and you wouldn't be an expert in any of it. So you'd have to learn how to do all that work every time you got a new big project. Ideal clients make everything easier. Okay. You just said something that is the next bullet point that Andrew put on our run sheet. And it was present yourself as knowledgeable for target clients and in focused areas, which is you not being the jack of all trades, master of none, but you saying, right. this is what I do and I'm very good at it because I spend all day, every day thinking about how to solve these sorts of problems. Right. That's kind of a good conversation starter. Yeah. Like, hey, that thing that you want and that thing that you need, I can do that because that's what I do. You want to be perceived as the expert. And a lot of architects don't like this. I say you really ought to specialize because when you become an expert and you specialize in one thing, you get that work. When you're competing against somebody who does all kinds of things and you're the guy who does the thing that this client wants, you're more likely to get that project and you're more likely to be able to charge a higher fee because you're that expert. Yeah. The argument for that very often is, well, what happens in a recession when all that work goes away? Well, if somebody has a project during the recession and you're the expert and there's other people out there who's not the expert, who do you think is going to get that, that one job that may be available out there? The person who's the expert. Yeah, you're trying to differentiate yourself against the people that are offering similar services. Like, you got to make yourself more cream so you can rise to the top. Yeah. Right. More creamy. <laughs> I think that works to a certain extent. Again, I'm going to be naysayer here because sometimes that idea that you're talking about is not really scalable. And what I mean by that is, yes, if I position myself as an expert in whatever, let's say schools example, which is what I used to do a lot of schools. Mm-hmm. Position myself as an expert in schools. Well, there are also behemoth giant 500,000 person firms that are experts in schools. And so sometimes I think it becomes difficult to make that argument. Yes, I could beat other mm-hmm. firms that were my size for that kind of work, but at times it becomes difficult to claim my expertise over yeah. a giant firm that's done 500 projects versus my 50. Sometimes that expertise thing, and again, it depends on the market, I think. And I think to me, that's what's so interesting about this whole process of business development is it's different for different markets, but it's also different at different scales of projects. So it's always in flux to me in my mind that those things can change. And even if I am the expert in my area or in my focus area, there's always a bigger fish, I feel like sometimes that I struggle with. Again, I think that's more on the commercial side, maybe than the residential side or small commercial even. Yeah, I think it, sometimes it's a little bit easier for those things. In that situation, you may also be, you may be in the wrong market. If there are firms that are experts at that and they're much larger and they're much better at it than you are, then they're in their market, right? And if you're competing against them, it may be not that you can't take those or even go after those projects, but maybe your brand should focus on something else that still resonates with that ideal client, but also resonates with other types of projects as well. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an expert in a project type. It might be the process that you go through or because you're smaller, you're faster. Or maybe you have a specific design style that is desirable for that type of market that the larger firms may not have. Or you have a connection to the local community, right? And so you can get those types of projects, maybe not all schools. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some schools and there's some medical spaces and there's dental suites, but there's something about all those types of projects that are in common Then you can specialize and say, hey, I'm the expert in doing this and this resonates with these types of clients. You know, I want to throw my, my hat in the ring in this part of the conversation because 
So I work now at a firm that's 100, 110 people. And we frequently punch out of our weight class because we are really the smallest big firm around or we're the biggest small firm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're not easily slotted because 100 to 110 people, it's a weird size. And we compete against firms for projects that have 800 employees, 1,200 employees. Sure. And we're tiny. And so, of course, and I believe all this to be true. We talk about why would you want to hire a 100-person firm to do this project when you're considering this 800-person firm? Well, we kind of go, well, first off, 800 people aren't working on your project. Right. And 100 people aren't working on your project. That's number one. Yeah, sure. And number two, then it can turn into, well, resources. Maybe the 100-person firm has different resources or their top 10% of people is higher than your top 10% because they've just got more bodies at it. So we talk about service as a differentiator. Your project matters more to us because we don't have 50 of them. We have one of them or we have five of them. So it matters more to us because this represents a bigger percentage of what we do than it might for a bigger firm. So you're a bigger fish to us than you might be for somebody else who has the ability to punch even above maybe their weight class. Or, hey, even at our size, we're more fleet of foot than some of these other institutions that might have a lot more layers of process and procedure in place than we would have. And when the phone rings, I answer it. Or it's one step to get to me, not you got to go through this person to that person. We don't have 37 different layers of tasks and roles and responsibilities because everybody has to be so niche and so specific because that's what happens. It seems like the bigger the firm gets, the more specialized the roles become. And that's certainly true. If I compare the 10-person firm I was with to the 30-person firm I was with to the 100-person firm, the bigger the firm gets, the more specific the skill sets get. Yeah. A lot of those larger firms then start splitting up into studios in order to get small again, mm -hmm. right? In order for them to be able to focus on specific markets and be yeah. seen as an expert in that specific market. I do think that the practical realities of what Andrew's talking about, like life is a consideration. When the recession hit and yeah. people have were these giant firms, and Andrew, I don't need to tell your story for you, but it was big giant firms that normally didn't go out to the projects. Like Andrew had kind of a slot that he existed in. He yeah. existed in the slot very well. But when all the big projects started drying up, all the big boys are like, um, yeah. we're going to go after everything that moves now. Right. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're not competing against people that are like you. You're competing against people that are a hundred times you. Yes. My 10 person firm competing against that 800 person or a thousand person firm, which made it difficult. Yeah. And again, my perspective is also a little bit different because 90% of the work I did was public. And so all those decisions to even get in the room with someone are made on paper before you even get there. Right. Yeah. I'm submitting paperwork and statements of qualifications and those kind of things. So nobody even sees me or I don't have a conversation with anyone until I can get past that first gate. And that's where it became the problem. That, that first gate starts to filter out a lot of that people of my size. Because if I could get in the room, I could make the argument like you were talking about, Bob, of like, hey, look, right, you're important to us. And yes, you're going to get me on the phone. And guess what? I'm the same person that's going to be here from today till the project is over. And you're not going to get handed off. And there's all those types of things to say. But when you can't get past that first gate to even have those conversations, it gets to be a little bit more difficult. You can write that all you want, but you know. <laughs> yeah, but you got to be able to say it. Yeah. All right. So look, Let's pivot to the next silo, because I think this is a good point, and talks about creating and cultivating your networks. And what I don't know, Andrew, 
specific about your situation, but I see it in the business that I have now. The amount of personality-based relationship building that happens so that when your name comes across somebody's desk, they already kind of have an idea of who you are and what you're about. And so that's why all these golf trips, that's why all these little boondoggles that happen (laughs) that aren't really about picking up any new skills. It's just about, hey, we're going to show you a good time, give you an opportunity to show who we are as people, what kind of matters to us, that we're good human beings. This is what this is about. So that when you do put out your drawings and you're considering, hey, who should build this? 450,000 square foot corn shell office building and you see X company name on the list, you go, I know those guys, they're good people. That's a big part of what creating and cultivating networks are. But one of the things I wonder, I go, Andrew, does that exist in the same capacity when you're doing public work as when you're doing private work? Yes and no, because there's too many decision makers in that public work process because all that stuff is decided by a committee. So it depends on that network of, yeah, I can take one or two of those people that go golfing and all these boondoggles, but I can't take the whole committee with me every time because there's turnover and things like that. I mean, relationships do matter. There is something to be said for cultivating those for sure. And that helps. I've had relationships where I cultivated those with higher education institutions and I would keep constant work going on with those. But then, well, that person I've cultivated that relationship leaves that institution to go somewhere else. Well, then that well starts to dry out because it's just how it works. You might have an opportunity in a new place, but then it it kind of starts over, even though you know them really well. So it does matter, but I think it's harder. It matters, but maybe, I don't want to say less, but it's difficult to cultivate those with enough meaningful emphasis to make sure that you always get a job. Hey, Mark, what do you think about the importance of creating and cultivating networks? Well, I think it's super important. I just want to reference what Andrew just said that building those relationships may not get you the job at that public level, but it may get you on the list because of somebody you know, maybe it's a facilities manager that you've built a relationship with a school district. The committee may change and roll, but that person is a constant in that position. So they may have some influence. I think cultivating your relationship with people is what it's all about. Whether it's that short little conversation on a telephone call that comes from a website with a small firm, or whether it's an active business development process that involves going out to California to go play golf with a construction company and a school board, I mean, you know, however, I've never done that type of work, so I don't know who you go hanging out with, but <laughs> yeah, but, but it's the same principle for sure, yeah. whatever that may be. The phrase, people work with the people that they know, like, and trust, that's a real thing. People make decisions based on people that they like, people they know, and people that they trust. Whether you're renovating a bathroom or whether you're going to build a $40 million building, if you're on the list and you know that person, you have a more likely shot at getting that job, right? Or at least getting through the process to get the job. It may not get you the job, but it may open the doors for you. And I know I become this broken record, but it goes right back to that ideal client because all of that relationship building needs to be focused on something, on a specific type of client. And so it's critical, whether it's a small project that you focus on kitchen renovations, who's your ideal client? You want to cultivate the relationships. When I did the work that I did in New York. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Okay, so this is something, I know it's coming. And you go, all right, let's say you do kitchen renovations. So who's your ideal client? My brain goes, "Uh, people with kitchens, (laughs) right? Well, it depends on the types of kitchens you do. So the question that people would ask, and I would be one of those people, 
If I say, I need to identify who my ideal client is, and then the trick is to go, well, where can I go find that ideal client? I need to go where they are, right? and then I need to put myself in a position, which we've already talked about, about establishing myself as a knowledgeable expert within the field. So you got to go, if I want to market myself out as a kitchen designer, and I need to go where people are looking for kitchen designers, and I need to establish myself as an expert so that my head is rising above all the other options that are in the mix. That's the thing that most people go, how do I do that? Yeah. That process could be going to find people where they gather and you have those relationships with them. Or that process may be a technical process. You may be building a website that pulls those people toward you rather than you going out to look for them. They look for you. Mm -hmm. You build a website that attracts people who are looking to do $200,000 kitchens you're going to find the people who are looking to do the $200,000 kitchens. You're not going to have to go out looking for them. If you've built a brand that says, I'm the expert who does $200,000 kitchens, you're going to have $200,000 kitchens clients coming in all day long. You hope. <laughs> well, if you do your work, if you do the process right, it works. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because like when I started the blog and I, I actually get a shocking amount of work through the blog. Yeah. I want to talk about that. I want to understand that and how it works for you. Yeah. Well, it was a complete accident. It was never a goal. Yeah, I know. I think that's part of what makes it successful is it never came across as direct marketing. And when you talk about, hey, people want to work with people that they like and they trust, that's what you get, right. I think, from the website. There's a quantity of information there to understand a pattern of behavior to not go, well, he has four articles. This one, I like him. This one, he's okay. That one's a jerk. And I think that there's enough to kind of even and out, you can figure out what you're getting yourself into if you go to my blog site, because I also don't show a lot of finished product. No. That's another thing that we kind of get into. But the thing that I think is the wrinkle, let's just keep it, you want to do ground up brand new residential projects. And you go, all right, how do I go get that work? How to me as a guy who I have lots of experience because I've worked for firms and I've been doing it for 20 years, I'm knowledgeable, I know what I'm doing. You see people saying, all right, well, I'm going to use the photo and say it was done by firm X by me when I was there. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of that that starts in the beginning sometimes. And you know, you're hoping that the people you work with are okay letting you go out and becoming their competition to say, hey, this thing I did for this firm, I'm going to do it now for myself. So don't go to them, go to me. But that whole growing the network and figuring out how you get your message out and how do people find it? You know, we're saying it like it's easy. No, it's not easy. And that it, you just do it. And it takes a long time. And the work just comes. It doesn't. We're talking years sometimes right. for this to happen. And there's an evolution of you help somebody pick a front door, then you're going to do a bathroom renovation, and then you're going to do a master bedroom addition, and then you're going to do a second story garage renovation, and then you're going to do an... There's this evolution that kind of happens to this process. You don't just get to come out of the gate and do high-end, single-family, ground-up, modern projects. Right. It just doesn't happen. $30 million homes. It yeah. just doesn't work. No. Yes. That's exactly what we tried to do when we were 29. Yeah. And it didn't yeah. work because yeah. you can't do that. You have to incrementally work up toward that work. You do exactly what you were talking about. So let's talk about this. That's marketing correctly. You need to market correctly. And, and that really has to do with communicating with the proper audience to meet your goals. It has to do with making your brand tell that story, but also saying why you're different. I don't know if this is a crude way to put it. It's not rude, but I go, if people call me up and say, I need a three bedroom, three bath house that doesn't leak. I go, 
line forms to the left of firms that can do that for you. Right. If that's your only requirement, you can probably go somewhere a lot less expensive than me to do that. Because I have learned over the years that I don't want every single project. I don't want to be the low cost provider because, hey, I don't really know how to be the low cost provider because my brain says, I need to tell somebody how to do this or I need to. (laughs) I'm damaged in that way that makes me not a good choice for powder bathroom renovations. I'm a bad choice for that because I'm going to go, here's your 17 pages of drawings for your powder bathroom. (laughs) Right. No one wants to pay for that. Yeah. I wouldn't want to pay for that. Right. So I go, I'm not that guy. That's not my market, which we've already established is understanding who your client is and what your project types are. Yep. However, I do think that you identifying who you are and communicating that so you can get the type of work that you want, which we've already said is incremental, but it's important to get the right message out so that at least the people that are receptive to it are hearing the right message. Right. You need to tell a story that resonates with your ideal client. And you are a perfect example of that. And whether it was intentional or not, you've been telling your story for how many years? 10 years? 12 years? 12 years. You've been telling your story for 12 years. And so your brand is what they say about you when you're not there. When you're not in the room, what are they talking about? That's your brand. Whether it's a good brand or a bad brand, that's what your brand is. And you, because you've been very intentional, and not about building the brand, but about sharing your story through your blog at first, sharing it very openly and honestly, this is what it's all about. This is what architecture is about. This is what Bob Borson's about. This is the type of work that Bob Borson does. This is the type of work that Bob Borson doesn't do. Every time you wrote another blog post, every time you've changed the website, the design of the website and the way it worked and the way it looked was building the brand. It was starting to cultivate a story about who Bob Borson is, which then resonates with a specific type of client who then starts to look for, oh, I want to work with Bob because Bob does that type of work that I want to do, which then ultimately finds work in California and Los Angeles and New York and Massachusetts all over because you've built a brand that is global. And you've done it to an extreme, but architects can learn a lot from what you've done. And now with the podcast, you're reinforcing that even further because now people can hear you tell your story every week. They can hear me insult Andrew and tell him that he couldn't actually take (laughs) out a chimpanzee with a hatchet. That's what they get to learn about Bob Borson. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that is building party, right? That may attract some, that may repel some. I'm waiting for it to attract me some, but you know. (laughs) You know, Mark, I will tell you this, that I decided back in 2010, when I first started doing this, is that I wasn't going to try to be something that I wasn't. Right. Which the appeal to do that was almost overpowering. Like to be better than who you think you really are. Because let's be honest. Most people don't think they're awesome. They can visualize a better version of themselves. Maybe that's a nicer way to put it. Like, I'm a work in progress. And I might have moments of just sublime clarity at times. But at the same time, I want to talk about who could win a fight in an alley between a man and a monkey. Because I'm not defined by just this one aspect of my personality that I've made. Because that's who you are. Available for public consumption. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. I will tell you that the people that have hired me because of the website, none of them have ever said, your work is so staggeringly amazing. That's why we hired you. Now, I know that people like the work that I do, but what I get is they go, I like you and I think I'd like working with you. That's what I get. Right. Which is a different type of branding exercise that maybe nowadays 
Like my daughter might understand that more as as a 17 year old than most 40 something year old architects do. They understand the idea that your personality is a brand and that people want to work with you. Not necessarily because you can keep water out of a building. That's kind of a given. Every architect should be able to keep water out of the building. Right. So you want to hire somebody that you think that you will enjoy the process with. Why would you hire me over someone else? Because we're going to have a good time. You're going to be happy with what you get. You're going to learn something along the way. And we're going to come out the other side as friends. That's what people get when they work with me. And I do think that that message has been consistent. And I believe it. Yeah. I haven't changed that message in 12 years. It's been very consistent. And in your case, you've built a personal brand. You've built the Bob Warson brand. And separately, you've built the Life of an Architect brand, which are really two separate brands. They're very, very close. But Bob Warson is somebody, right? Anybody who listens to you and follows you has a very specific idea of who you are and how you work. And it's probably pretty accurate because you've been open and honest about who you are and and how you work. Yeah. You could have chosen to be bigger than you really are and better than you really are. And that's a choice. People can do that, but that's much, much harder to do. It's much harder to maintain for sure, right? I mean, you have to do it forever. You can do it. I knew out of the gate that that was not something that I could sustain. I go, it's not sustainable. I can do it for burst for sure, but couldn't sustain it. Right. And I will tell you that the kind of comments I get were, first off, that whole building the Bob Borson brand Total accident. It was never on my radar screen. No, yeah, I know that. It was not an objective. I've been living and reading. Yeah. <laughs> the one comment I get, and when I get it, it absolutely makes my day, is when people meet me and they go, you are exactly how I thought you would be. And I go, you know what? Man, that makes me feel terrific because yeah. I want to portray myself as who I actually am. Now, Andrew would say, you are that, but you're a whole lot more that's worse. <laughs> <laughs> You're hiding a lot. Yes. And, <laughs> well, not worse, just different. You're a whole lot more that beyond that, right? It's not beyond that. There's just a wall there somewhere that, you know, only a few of us get to get through. I want to make sure that people who are listening, though, don't misunderstand what I'm saying when I use you as an example, because you're an extreme. You've done this for a long time. You've grown a very large platform. Somebody else listening, you don't have to build a Bob Borison brand and have millions of listeners. You don't have to do all that. But building a brand is important. And Bob is a perfect example of somebody who's built a brand and has benefited from it throughout the year. You know, and before we move on to the next one, because I think it's important and I think it's the last one on our list, is I think at times my shtick or whatever I have done, whether or not it was on purpose or an accident, works because it was never. Let's see if I can articulate this in a more condensed package. (laughs) It's worked for me because it was not a goal. And as a result, it was authentic, which that actually is my brand, is the authenticity. Correct. Figure that. But I also didn't have to have any of this as business development because that was not a goal. So I had the luxury of time. I had the luxury for this. I'm doing air quotes. The brand to simmer and percolate and kind of solidify into what it is for five, six, seven years before I ever looked at it as, oh, now I'm starting to get work. And I will tell you, because people ask this question, I started to get work because of the blog site when I was still at the firm where I started it, but it didn't really change until all of a sudden I went out, not on my own, but I got my name on the door. Yeah. And now all of a sudden people went, oh, he's not some guy just in the cubicle talking about architecture. I can actually hire him. That change of actually putting myself out and in a position to quote unquote sell work, that 
opened the door to people actually saying, okay, I want to hire you. Yeah, that's interesting. And that was like seven years in. Yeah. Seven years into the 12-year process. So. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also a little different because like we talk about, this is never our main job. Wasn't your main job. So it wasn't focused on that idea of actually business development. Mm -hmm. It is a good example of how to do things, but it could simmer and be slow because it wasn't what you were using to pay the bills. That's right. Yeah. Right. And that puts a little bit different spin on it, I think, Mark, about how it works, even though I agree it's a good example, but it's slightly different because it's not his main meat and potatoes work. I mean, efforts. But I agree. Yeah. But if he didn't do that, he would have had to build some other brand that would have attracted the clients that he wanted. Yeah. He didn't have to do that because he built this other brand that worked. Yeah. But if he didn't have the blog, if he didn't have the podcast, like other architects may not have that, they need to do some other business development process, which requires building a brand. Yeah. I'd be the person listening to this episode, wondering, how do I do this? Right. That would be it. And I'm still going to listen to it going, I need to like, how do we do this? <laughs> which brings me to the last big, bold kind of topic we had, which yep. I think based on what Andrew was just saying, was to be able to adapt. Like when you're saying, hey, maybe you're in the wrong market if you're the 10 guy firm competing against the 800 person firm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. So being able to adapt things like seeking out new market opportunities, like trying to find different sources for leads, you know, adaptation is necessary for growth and to provide, or as we put it here, support stability. You need to be able to pivot based on market conditions at times, I think especially if you do what Andrew does and you work in the public field. Yeah. There are a lot of firms that will die on the sword fighting for diversity. The market diversity and project diversity is what kept them alive during the recession. There's also a lot of experts out there with specializations who've also survived because of that. So the argument certainly can go both ways. But I also want to make one thing clear about what we're talking about in terms of brand and target market and ideal client. Those are critical, but it doesn't mean that you have to turn away everything else. That's just what you're marketing toward. That's where you're putting all your work and all your energy toward that ideal client. But if you want to take on a restaurant because it's cool or you would like to do restaurants, you're going to take one to give it a shot. That doesn't mean that you can't try other things or build other markets. It's just that you want to focus on a specific target in order to gain the traction that you're looking for. So that diversity could happen and focus on a target market. Yeah, I like to think of it as even the greatest firms out there, they still have jobs that they do to pay the bills. Right. But that's not the jobs they market. That's not the work that they pursue. You may never see them. Yeah, it's not the image that they put out there. But there are still projects that firms of any size, I think, do yeah. that just pay the bills. And it's part of the process. It's just not as glamorous. But I think using those things to help you to be able to pursue that ideal client and those ideal projects, I think that's an important thing. It goes back to that saying yes to everything earlier, but at some point you can narrow down those yeses, but be able to find something that can support you maybe through those market turns, even if it's not your ideal client or ideal project, but being able to adapt in those ways to say, all right, well, my ideal market just dried up yeah. because it was, I don't know, all petroleum based or something. And now I've got to move a little bit, but I've had these other things that I'm working on, even though they're not my focus. I think the idea of this. Business development, again, why to me it's about this idea of sustainability and long-term development so that I can manage those things. Yeah, they might be lean times, but guess what? There's still times. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the end of me. It's just lean times. And then when things shift back, I can 
go back to the focus that I had before, or maybe I find that there's a new focus. I think that's the other thing that we've kind of hit through as we've talked about these things is really is that the idea of this adapting is even adapting over time to say, like you said, well, I started out wanting to do this, I couldn't do it, and then I adapted to doing these renovations, and that even over time grew and adapted, right. even though it's still in that same focus area, but things adapt, and it's just part of business being able to adapt. There is a need for you to think about that as you start to develop your business. I got a perfect example that summarizes both your positions on this. So my firm, 100 plus people, we do projects in many market sectors. And the people that do that work, they don't fluctuate between different market sectors. They kind of have like a silo that they stay in. Our biggest, most robust market sector is corn shell office buildings. Well, guess what? When the pandemic happened and everybody went home, nobody's doing corn shell office buildings anymore. Mm -hmm. So we were able to pivot and we have an interiors group and everybody started to reposition existing buildings for when that eventual return back to the office started taking place. It was like an armed race to amenitize these existing buildings and going, how do we provide these services? How do we provide these? We're going to do a a coffee bar. We're going to do gym facilities. I mean, our interiors group grew really, really fast because we couldn't handle the amount of work that was coming to us. But it was not the same as the corn shell people. They're not doing anywhere near the sort of work that they were previously. Now, fast forward two years, now both groups are going bonkers. But our interiors group is able to take on different types of projects because of what they learned and the way that they grew during that period where no corn shell office buildings were being done. But if we just just did corn shell office buildings, uh, we would have had a lot of casualties in the office, for sure. We didn't have enough work to keep 100 people busy if that's all we did. But luckily, we did have a diversification to our portfolio that allowed us to still keep the lights on and keep everybody employed and we didn't lay anybody off, that sort of thing. It's important. So I support Andrew's position on how important diversity is, but I do think it's a scalable issue. It's not the same thing when you're four people or two people or seven people to the same extent it is when you're 20 people or 50 people or a hundred people, I think. Was the core and shell market, the people, the ideal client, were they the same clients as the people doing the retrofits of existing buildings? Basically the same market? In some cases, yes. Yeah. In some cases, yes. Some developers that they just do the core and shell office building. Right. Yeah. And then they reposition it and let someone buy it because they're not in the management business. They're in the building and selling business. And so then the people that have portfolios where they go, we manage 30 different properties. They're the ones that are hiring us. So it's different groups, but it's not 100% different groups. Sometimes it's just two different groups within the same company. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not my relationship with Bill does not necessarily mean my position with Jeff or Mary over here. They don't necessarily overlap. So it's different, different groups altogether. Yeah. The pandemic certainly put the idea of specialization to the test. You know, I know a lot of hospitality architects that their business literally dried up in one day. Mm, yeah. They announced everybody's going home and no one was going to hotels anymore. The, all the work stopped. And so they had to pivot to doing some other type of work. And the ones that I know looked at their ideal client and said, well, what type of work do they need now? Right? If they're not going to do new hotels, what type of work do they need? And they pivoted to roof renovations and repairs and that kind of work in order to get more work, same ideal client, and still had the brand and the reputation for knowing what they're doing. They shifted their market to another market. 
And so that flexibility was there even in a situation where it was a, an exclusive hospitality firm still could pivot. It was scary. <laughs> I could tell you they're, they're friends of mine. Very scary for a month or so, but gained some traction once they shifted to a different type of work. Okay, Mark, we're coming to the end of our time together. Rather than just go, you're out. Do you want to put a bow on this? When we talk about business development, how would you, somebody kind of just goes, all right, I just listened to an hour of, yeah. of Mark, Bob, and Andrew talking about this. What's the one thing that you want people to take away? With? I want to go back to where I started. Financial plan. Financial management system in place. Yeah. Understand your profit plan because that's where it all starts. Understanding how many projects are coming into your yeah. firm allows you to build a brand to attract that ideal client. That's how you do it. And small firms struggle a lot traditionally because they don't do the upfront work. They just get to work. You can't just get to work. You need to do the prep work before you can do the work you want to do. And so that's where I want to leave it. I want to make sure people focus on that upfront stuff before they get to the business development because the business development will be much more successful and a lot more fun. Yeah. Yeah. If you know how much money you have to spend on golf parties, it's better. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. Well, that's all part of it. That's part of a profit plan. If you know how much money you got to spend on that, you want to know your business development budget before you start doing business development. Exactly. Got to have that. I'm going to talk to Andrew (laughs) offline about golf parties. (laughs) This is like a high school putt-putt event. Yeah, exactly. Before you cut me off, like you said, you were going to cut me off. Well, not literally cut you off, but. (laughs) I know. I just want to thank you both. I want to thank you for uh, everything that you do. Not only for letting me come here today and hang out with you guys for a little while, I love this, but for what you've done for the last 12 years, being out there telling the story of what architects do, that is a really, really important job, something that the profession for generations has suffered from, that architects are not telling the real story of what architects do. And your blog and your podcast and the work that you and Andrew do today is so important for the profession, for the rest of the world to understand what we do as architects. And so I just want to thank you for doing what you do for the last 12 years. Well, thanks. That's gracious of you to take your time to congratulate us and thank us. But you're right there with us. Yeah, I was going to say, it's definitely not me. I think it's you two and not really me. So, Well, look, if we go back to that picture from 10 years ago. I know. We're all going to be in it, right? We're all going to be in it. This is true. I'll send you that if you want to put it in the show notes. I have the picture. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Send us the best quality version because I think I'd be like a screen grab off of some social media feed from years ago. So I have the original. All right. Well, Mark, thanks again. Really appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you probably in Chicago. Yeah, I'll be there. Let's go grab some pizza. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. All right, Mark. Take care, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was fun. Good hanging out with you guys. All right. Yep. Thanks so much. So that was really nice for Mark to take time out of his day to join us. I know that he's super busy. Obviously, when we took on the topic of business development, I didn't even think other than he would be a good fit for the show. Yeah, exactly. He's been dealing with that kind of stuff for a while. His I know. side hustle, now real hustle, now main job. The hustle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm not surprised that he really was focusing on the financial aspect of it. Because do you remember the verse, like, here's Mark not just drinking a beer, having a chat? But actually, this is what I'm about. Remember, he was doing those business plans. Oh, yeah. At convention where he was doing business plans and doing... That's right. Judging them or those contests with AIA. So he's really into that business plan stuff. So he actually gave a presentation on the floor Yeah. to talk about, like, here's what a business plan is. So clearly, this is a passion for him. Yeah. 
he really cares about it. And I thought it was interesting. I don't know that I completely agreed that that's where it starts. I think that that's a piece of information you need to have. Because I was thinking about there's an architect here. You know, you have to decide how much money you need to make, but you also have to go, well, how big a firm do I want to be? Do I want to grow? How much money do I want to make? What do I want to pay employees? Do I want to have employees? How many employees do I want to have? You know? Yeah. Those are all the things that a financial plan can help tell you because then, to Mark's point, then you know how many projects you need to go and get. The thing that that breaks down in my brain a little bit is you saying, well, I need to make $800,000 this year to pay all my bills. Let's go get $800,000 worth of projects. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I wish that it worked that easy. Like you just turn it on a water tap. Yeah, I know. But it's setting those goals. You not have a target, even if it's a financial target. I think a lot of the conversation also in my mind, we might have skipped year one and two of actually starting and operating a business because a lot of that in the beginning is figuring stuff out and, and really it is about getting jobs to get money and pay the bills and keep things going. And I think there's a time period there where you got to kind of settle in and then you can start really getting into the things that we were talking about in this episode a little bit more heavily. I think it'd be interesting for us to do a podcast topic that's called year one of starting a business. Yeah, maybe so. And that's just it. You're just talking about like yeah, day one through day 365. I think that that would be yeah. kind of interesting because it's a small enough period and a big enough period to get in the weeds of what happens and what are the trials and tribulations and successes that could possibly come your way. So that might be something worth considering. Okay, now that we got the business development out of the way, it's time for this episode's What's the Rank? Yep. Now it's time for the funny business. Yes. Well, I don't know how funny this one's going to be. Yeah, I know. <laughs> We're going to rank the best three communicable diseases. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not mm. what we're ranking. Oh, okay. Okay, okay we're going to rank the top three holidays. Okay. All right. Just as any holiday as we define it? Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, you know how this works. You're going to say, I choose this, and I'm going to tell you why you can't do that. Sure, sure. That that works. That's only if you go like weird. <laughs> okay. All right. So it was my question. So it's our, our top three. Yeah. You got to give me, what's your number one? <sighs> okay. Number one or number three? Uh, No, let's go. Okay. You want to go backwards? Let's go backwards. Okay. Let's what's number backwards. three? I think number three is ooh, um, St. Patrick's Day. You know, I knew you were going to have that in your list. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I got a little bit of Irish in me, but I always just like it. It's a good chance to go and have some Guinness and, I don't know, be merry. Just forget things for a day. I got a lot of good memories from St. Patrick's Day also. Well, you know, that's what I was going to say. I think that if you're below the age of blank, St. Patrick's Day is a funner holiday. The older you get, the less fun the holiday is. Maybe, maybe. Like I go, I don't want to drink green beer anymore. I don't want to do that. No, I don't. And I don't need a special occasion to go get me a Guinness. I guess. I still enjoy the holiday, though. I guess it still just has meaning for me. It's still important. It's much more mellow, for sure, than it used to be. But it's still an important holiday. Look, don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. But I will tell you, St. Patrick's Day has meant vastly... Like, when I was a kid, it meant wearing green or getting pinched. (laughs) Yeah. And then I got older, it was like... Hey, bars and pubs and drinking green beer. And then I got a little older and it was like, hey, there's like crazy St. Patrick's Day parade where people are going bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm like, I don't want to mess with the parking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've definitely hit that demographic to where 
now it, it's a holiday that I watch from a great distance away. So it's not bad, but doesn't move the needle for me. I still like to people watch. Maybe that's it too. All right. So number three for you then is what? Fourth of July. Mm, okay. Number three, huh? Well, you know what? That's because, well, number one on my list is an easy number one. Number two, eh, it's also easy one. So number three was the only one that I actually gave any time thinking about. Interesting. Huh, should it be this or should it be that? Interesting. And I like 4th of July because, and that's a very USA-centric holiday, obviously. I like the activities. I like fireworks. I like barbecuing. I like swimming. I have great memories of 4th of July. And it was always a fun outdoor diving off into the pool, cannonballs, eating hot dogs. Or I mean, I don't have a single bad memory about that as a day of activities in my life. Agreed. Agreed. That's why it's my number two. Ooh. Because I love 4th of July also. And I'm a big fan of fireworks, man. You know, I used to like to blow stuff up. Now, I mean, I like barbecue and I like being outdoors. I mean, it's just a really fun kind of holiday. Yeah. Really fun. And again, I think it's always fun. No matter what your age, it's a pretty good holiday. Yes. All right. So we know you're number two. Yep. My number two is Christmas. Hmm. Okay. You know, and it's interesting. I'm not so sure that I would point to my childhood and say, oh, Christmas is great because I have such great memories from being a child mm-hmm. at Christmas. I don't have any bad memories. Right. I didn't have any memories of, you know, they're not <laughs> all those socks and underwear you got for Christmas as a child or not. I mean, we got a fair share of those. My, my parents were very <laughs> like everybody had to get the same number of presents, you know, uh, we yes, opened up yes. up in order. It wasn't like a starter's pistol and everybody started tearing open presents. Oh, it wasn't. It was like one person at a time. You kind of went around the room. We watched everybody open their gifts. Oh, and then you had to go, oh, Man. a corduroy cowboy hat. I love it. You know, when am I going to wear this? Yeah. So, but I like it and I still like it because I still have a kid in the house, which is fun and she loves it. And we drink mimosas and we have certain foods that we eat. And there's all these fun parties that are kind of associated with Christmas time. But like the actual day itself is just kind of like nice cherry on the top. Sit around your pajamas for like three quarters of the day drinking mimosas and opening up gifts. It's fun. (laughs) I love it. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm going to bet we have the same number one. Because if you don't have my number one as your number one now, there's no way my number one would not be in your top three. There's no way. Let's hear it. Don't think about it. Don't try to solve it. What's your number one? Bam. No, because I think it's going to be, man, I don't know. Let's go. I think it's probably Thanksgiving. Correct. That is the correct answer. And you know what? It's in first place by a mile for me. Hmm. I love Christmas. I love 4th of July, but it's really like Thanksgiving is number one, two, three, four, five, and six, and then Christmas. And then, you know. Interesting. Interesting. I love Thanksgiving. I honestly, I will tell you, I mean, Thanksgiving is okay. I think it's more involved. I guess maybe that's the reason why I like it. I mean, there's a lot of things happening and I spend a lot of time with family, but I'm actually doing stuff and I'm eating a lot too. But we're making food. I mean, kind of like 4th of July, right? I mean, you're barbecuing, you're doing this stuff and Thanksgiving, you're making food and doing that kind of stuff. Christmas doesn't work that way so much for me. It never has. Mm -hmm. But Thanksgiving is just, I don't know. And usually it's a nice time of year sometimes, at least here in Texas, right? The weather's decent. Yes. Yes. We finally are starting to get like, it's not a thousand degrees outside. Yeah. I mean, and that's why I didn't put Christmas in there because I don't like Christmas in shorts. Sometimes it makes me feel like a hatred for Christmas because it's 92 degrees outside. Yeah. But yeah, Thanksgiving, I think. 
I will say Halloween was really might have should have been my number three. Might have should have been on the list. I really enjoy Halloween as well. Yeah. Again, maybe not so much as a grown up older person, but up until I was probably 35 or 40, I really loved Halloween. Yes. You know, I think Halloween's going to be that one. If other people are coming up their top three, that's the only real player, I think, on this list that isn't necessarily represented on our two lists. Yeah. You know, part of the reason I love Thanksgiving is it's like we have a better chance that they're actually being some cooler weather. There's a lot of eating. There's a lot of cooking. But I made a decision long time ago, 20 years ago. I host Thanksgiving at my house. Mm-hmm. So that meant my parents, my wife's parents, anyone who was going to be coming doing a Thanksgiving thing, they came to my house. In exchange, I made all the food. I cooked everything. I serve everyone. That's what I get out of it. And I don't have to travel. So I don't have to deal with that. Oh, I got to have Thanksgiving at this house. And then we're going to have Thanksgiving at two. And then I'm going to eat a second Thanksgiving at this parent's house at nine o'clock. I don't have to mess with any of that. But we have like a thing, you know, everyone comes in and we're like Wednesday night, we go out for margaritas and Mexican food. Thursday, you know, normally I'm making like a big Thanksgiving dinner. Mm -hmm. And my sister usually shows up with like a billion bottles of wine. And so everyone's just, they're not getting ripped, but they're feeling pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then there's football on, which I love watching football at the time of the year. Yeah. And then on Friday, I usually smoke a brisket or something. And I mean, it's just like meat coming. <laughs> Nobody ever gets in fights. There's no Thanksgiving drama ever. I don't. Yeah. Usually there's not drama at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. We have no drama from it. So for me, easy. Number one. If I could have made Thanksgiving number one, two, and three, I would have. But it doesn't really. It's not really the spirit of the ranking the top three holidays. The only other one besides Halloween, I think, and not for me, but New Year's Eve could possibly be one. Those are like 50-50 for me on good New Year's Eves and bad New Year's Eves, right? So I don't that's why it didn't work for me, but some people may say that. All right. In their tops. But yeah, I think we're good. Thanksgiving for sure. All right. Well, everybody let us know. I'll see how many New Year's and Halloween's make the list. So I'm going to call that quits. We're at a good stopping point, and we'd like to thank today's guest, Mark LePage, for joining us, and we'd like to thank you, the listener, for hanging out with us for episode 102, Business Development. In addition, special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? Make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you can get alerted every time we publish a mega awesome new episode. And if you got a few moments and feel motivated to give the show some appreciation, we would love to get a review and hopefully a five star. What's it going to take to get you in this brand new car rating? To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this outstanding episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.